building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. Kevin McGarry. Hey, hey, Ken. Thanks for coming all the way up from LA, man. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. A fellow LAN. San Franciscan actually, but Really? California, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so I'm from Northern Cal. Yeah. Oh, so you're from the inferior part of the state. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm from the part of the state that is, is really the spiritual the demonic forces there in San Francisco Dude. are Yeah. You could feel I mean, when you go around Northern California, you yep. can actually feel the sort of deadness, the spiritual yeah. deadness. Really? It's it's absolutely like that. So tell me why every black life matters. Uh, every black life matters because God believes every black life matters. Uh, why we were founded and why we started is because of the organization Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter actually uh, started to run commercials a little bit ago that said, "No lives matter until every black li- until Black Lives Matter." And what occurred to me is that, okay, that's true. That's a good, I I can agree with that sentiment. In the same way, no black lives matter until every single black life matters. So we're much more granular in focus and intention. Black Lives Matter is on the record by saying that they're, you know, strictly focused on police brutality and those types of incidents. We are focused on black life, the plight in black life from... Uh, the womb to natural death. So there's all kinds of potential plight in every phase of black life that blacks go through. And uh, we're here to help mitigate as much of that as possible. So you're talking specifically about abortion. Well, no, it's, do we care about abortion? Absolutely. But it's not specifically about abortion. So the, the earliest plight that black life has to sort of endure is in the womb. And one of the most dangerous places for black Americans is is in the womb because a lot of us just don't make it out due to the overabundance of abortion and, and that that type of thing. But additionally, you have early child care, you have uh, educational choice, you have you have stray bullets that come into homes in Chicago, Detroit, New York, where you have toddlers, literal mm-hmm. toddlers or newborns being slaughtered overnight due to stray bullets. I mean, that's that's a real plight that we're seeing, especially this year. And there's, there's, I'm not aware of any organizations that stand up for those families and go and provide them with emotional and financial support. We're doing that work because we see that that's, that's a real plight. There's a real injustice there. There's, there's real suffering there. I mean, could you imagine being a parent you're getting up, making your Saturday breakfast. You haven't heard your your newborn or your your toddler stir. You go in there and you find out that that toddler's been shot overnight. You know, first of all, you have families. Those families, of course, don't have life insurance because you're thinking that the child's going to grow up and have a nat- you know normal life. So we want to come and stand with those families immediately, provide them with emotional and financial support, get their GoFundMe pages started, and really come and and help them get through that 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 immediate sorrow and grief 
that they have to endure. So so we have that. Then you have issues with criminal justice. Then you have issues with fatherlessness. You know, the, the, the gamut of the lifespan of plight that is in the black community is pretty significant. Some people say, well, you know, don't all lives matter or can't, you know, every community experiences plight, experiences some degree of plight. And that's true to a degree. But the amount that black families experience is really disproportional. So that's what we're trying to address. We're not trying to to say that other communities don't experience the same type of suffering. All communities, we're here and we're in a fallen world. So we're going to have a certain amount of suffering. That's That's true. But the reality is, is in the black community, there's very specific things that a black family has to endure. And we're there to help black families through that, those processes. So essentially, the entire culture uh, and the cultural breakdowns you want to deal with, not just the police brutality thing, which, you know, we kind of know, what was it, uh, 10, 10 unarmed black men were killed by the police last year in total. Five of those were completely justified. And I forget all its stats now. Three of those were... The guys were disciplined uh, compared to the huge gamut of suffering that has occurred for many reasons. So it's the idea of focusing so strictly on the police. That's just a small part of all the issues that need to be dealt with. That's what you're saying. That's exactly right. So the reality is, is yes, there are instances of police brutality, but statistics don't show that every black life is going to experience that at any particular level. I'm going on 60 I've never had an altercation with police. Now I was, I was raised in Hunters Point in San Francisco. I experienced the full hood life. I, you know, I went through it all, but I still never had an altercation. Now, maybe that's just God's grace. Maybe I'm just I was in a bubble. I don't know. But in reality, most blacks in mass don't experience, don't come in contact, depending on where you live, and you know those types of factors don't actually experience police in any meaningful way other than maybe a ticket here and there. So for organizations to say that this is squarely our focus, then you'd kind of do a disservice to all the other areas, all the other domains of life that blacks have to go through. And there's no one there. There's no organization that's really standing up for that, for those areas. So that's why, that's why we're here. Uh, the other thing is, is that we saw that a lot of, org- a lot of well-meaning Christians, well-meaning people of faith, well-meaning foundations and other communities, churches, could not get behind Black Lives Matter for myriad reasons, and I think that they're all good reasons. That organization uh, has its own issues organizationally. The sentiment, Black Lives Matter, is fine. And people, you know, everybody I know said, yeah, Black Lives do matter. But Getting behind an organization that is committed to revolution in order to overturn American values or history, committed to overturning free markets and capitalism, uh, the things that really help black life as opposed to hurt, hurt it, and then committed to destroying the nuclear family. They would prefer that fathers not be in the home. Now, one of the number one factors, determinants as far as crime and uh, poverty, well, there's actually two very well-known determinants. One is a father in the home, in, the black, in, a, in a black family, and number two is education. So we need educational choice. We absolutely need it in our community. And when you have, in some cases, like in California, up to 75% of African-American uh, boys are not reading at grade level. 
then you know, well, the, you know, and, and there's all kinds of factors. Uh, it's not just bad teachers, not just bad school districts, but you have you have people that learn at different rates and different types of learning, different. So charter schools, private schools, those types of things put a little bit more uh, focus on on kids. And, and depending on your learning style, you may do better in those types of schools. Right now, blacks are strictly re- relegated to public education. So let me ask you yeah. about that. Why? Yeah. You know, we hear all the time about white privilege. And one of the things that comes with privilege, I, I would call it economic privilege, not white privilege. But uh, if you belong to the country club, you get to be connected with all those people. It doesn't matter what color you are. You, you're still able to get your son or daughter a job or stuff that other people can't, right? Whether, it doesn't matter what your race is. But when we hear about white privilege, one of the big things is private school, charter schools, they can go to those. So why is it those people who are very much against white privilege oppose school choice? It seems like it's two different. What, what, what's the deal? As a nice hypocrisy you've just, uh, you just uh, sort of enunciated here. This is the issue, right? The people, you know, all of our electeds, their kids, their grandkids are going to private school. Most, of, most all of them, you know, Congress, even local electeds. And and they're the ones uh, that are spouting out about white privilege to your to your point, but yet they're not allowing black ch- kids to experience the same level of educational choices that they may have, and it's easy for us to do. We can just uh, you know do via vouchers and and those types of things. We can we can have the sort of the funds follow the students like President Trump has talked about and others. So it's it's fairly easy to do to bring about a policy that will make a difference that way. But most of our electors, especially those that are sort of the political class, uh, those that are more left, left-leaning, uh, really want to relegate blacks, it just seems to me, blacks in particular and black and brown students to strictly public education. And what do they get out of that? Why would they do that? I, I think what it does is it ensures that they, their number one uh, union supporter, National Education Foundation, is, is assured a pipeline of students going through those school systems. They know that if they, if they encourage competition at that level, that there'll be, there'll be a, a pretty significant exodus. But here's the thing. So just to summarize, you're saying teachers' unions are paying politicians, and therefore those politicians do whatever it takes to keep kids in public school, keep out schools out of the free market so that they can bow down to their master of the unions that are giving them the money to do exactly that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So a lot of these campaigns are funded. As a matter of fact, NEA is, is hugely funding, uh, especially Democrat uh, candidates. And so because of their funding, then, of course, the, the electeds have to kind of bow to that, to their whims and assure them a pipeline of, of viable students coming through their, their systems. If they were to allow for competition, then there would be an exodus and some of those monies would be lost from the public school systems because they would be used in other systems. I've always thought that teachers, well-meaning principled teachers, are more concerned with actual learning than it is about, you know, aggregating the masses in their classrooms. If they're really concerned about students and if it's really all about the children, which we've heard that cliche for decades, it's all about the children. If it's right. really as all about As long as they make the it out of the womb alive. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But if it's really all about the children, then those teachers really should be willing 
to say, you know, some level of competition is good. It'll help us to refine our teaching methodologies, our curriculum. It'll keep everybody honest. Competition is fine. No one, however, there's very few organizations that are standing up for those types of things that relegate black families into generations of poverty and criminality. And if we can address that, which we are doing at Every Black Life Matters, what we're doing is we're saying, look, we're going to stand up for policies that allow educational choice and parental choice. Those are important. And we're going to stand up for fatherhood programs. How do you do that? So um, so the first issue was, or the yeah. second issue was school choice. The yeah. first issue was fatherlessness. Yeah. How, what do we do to get dads to stay in the home? Yeah. So getting dads to stay in the home, that's a whole nother level. Because, you know, reality is, is that a lot of these young men are having having sex at earlier and earlier ages, and they're making decisions and having consequences. That said, uh, they may not have a real love or affection for uh, the young lady or the woman who is having their their child. You're meaning to tell me that a man would have sex with a woman with whom he didn't have affection? Yeah. What, yeah, they what would. kind of crazy world is that? <laughs> they would. It happens all the time. <laughs> Every so, woman listening, please hear that. Yes. Happens all the time. And and essentially what's what what happens in that is the the mothers are left with the child. Now, a lot of times the the father, the male, leaves and doesn't even have any relationship at all with with that child because they're no longer in the picture. What we're going to eliminate are the consequences of leaving the child. Now, staying in the home with the child is one thing. That's if you want to marry her, you have a real love affection for her, you have a great vibe together, go ahead and get married. We're going to encourage that. That is not the majority of the cases though. Most cases it's hit and miss here and there and you know, we just had a, you know, hookup and it just happened. So with those situations, we want young fathers to understand the consequences of leaving that child with no relationship to them. And that's an education process. Now, some of the, I, I just have a couple of the, a couple of the stats here uh, written down as a matter of fact. So a child without a father, without any kind of father relationship is five times more likely to commit suicide, six times more likely to experience poverty, nine times more li- likely to drop out of school, 10 times more likely to abuse drugs, 14 times more likely to uh, commit rape, 20 times more likely to go to prison, and 32 times more likely to run away. Just having a father around who is in contact with that child. So what strikes me, and I think people really need to hear, the first one is 500% more likely to commit suicide if he doesn't have a father at home. Yes, true. 1,400% 1,400% more likely to be a rapist. Yeah. That is, you, you talk about what a dad teaches a son right there, the the value of his own life, his own identity, and the value for other life for women specifically. Yeah. That is, that's massive. That That's a problem we've got to solve. We, we have to solve it. Now, a lot of it is we haven't really had any candid conversations with Fathers in the community. Okay, all fathers, come meet me at the community center on Saturday. We're gonna have, we're gonna feed you. We got some speakers, some cool speakers, and we're going to talk about fatherhood initiatives and make it sort of, you know, hey, this is, you know, please, if you're a father, just come on. And it doesn't matter what age of a father you are. You can be 15. You could be 35. Doesn't matter. Just come in and let's talk. And so we would host that, 
we would feed them, and then we'd put up multiple speakers. Bob Woodson is a great speaker, and he has a fatherhood initiative. He's awesome. So we're partnering with the Woodson, uh, the Woodson Center. Uh, Frederick Douglass Foundation, which is, I'm, I'm the chairman of the Frederick Douglass Foundation of California, but nationally, the Frederick Douglass Foundation. First vice, vice presidential candidate in American history, right? Frederick Douglass, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yes. Oh. Uh, black and, yeah, exactly. And then we have the uh, Douglas Leadership Institute, which we actually do fatherhood initiatives as well. So we would partner with organizations to put these these conver- candid conversations, these panel discussions, and bring out these statistics. A lot of times, the reason why these fathers are no longer connected to the to the child is number one, they think that they have a bad relationship with the mother, and they don't even want to have to go through any drama. Okay, that happens. Um, but if they could connect to the fact that what they're doing actually creates a negative consequence, a very negative pathway for that child, that may keep them, may give them the impetus to at least remain connected. You don't have to stay at the house. You know, maybe you touch base once a month just to see how that child is doing, to provide some coaching and encouragement. You may not even have your life together as a father. You may still be abusing things, abusing drugs. doesn't matter. If you were in that child's life, you could set an example. My father was an alcoholic all through growing up, but I learned from him. And he stayed in the house. My parents are still married, 60, 60 years, still married, living in San Francisco. My father stayed in the house, but he was a runaway alcoholic all my formative years. But what it taught me is... Uh, I never want to be like that with my wife. So it taught me to stay away from alcohol. So you don't have to be the perfect model, even in your uh, sort of, you know, condition, whatever that may be, it still speaks to the child. They may say, you know, oh, I see you're abusing drugs. I don't think I want to abuse drugs because I see what what's happening in your life. Like it was for me. I saw that my father was abusing alcohol I saw very clearly, I didn't want to be in that situation. I didn't want to have a family and a wife and be abusing alcohol. So I stayed away. So, uh, but in that, in that regard, now he's, you know, he's been clean for 40 years, but all my formative years he was. But in that regard, his life spoke to me. So we're not talking about being a perfect father. We're talking about just being a father. Just Make yourself known. So present. just letting them know how important their presence in in that son or daughter's life, even if they're not that great, just knowing you have a dad who, who's trying, who even if you're going to screw up, at least you're trying. At least you're trying. So let me ask you this. All the stuff that you're talking about that you brought up, I don't hear anybody in, in greater culture talking about this. I mean, you, when you, you look at all these sports leagues, kneeling and all this kind of stuff and all the the, the – the um, messages all over the NFL and the NBA. Nobody's talking about any of these things that are vastly more proportionate. Again, police killed 10 unarmed black men last year, and five of those were completely exonerated. So it's a problem, but it's nowhere near the problem of fatherlessness, of a lack of school choice, of massive abortion in the black community. There are more babies murdered in New York than are born, black babies. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they talking about it? Why isn't the NFL taking on that? Well, you, you want to know my take on it? My take is this, and this is the same thing about churches. Churches, by and large, a lot of them, and I'm generalizing here, I understand that, but a lot of them said, yeah, Black Lives Matter, let's go. And then now that Black Lives Matter is an organization, we're finding out more and more of them. They still haven't renounced them. They're still all in. 
the reason why churches and athletes and all these organizations are not talking about the things I'm talking about is because all of those things are brought about by systemic, not systemic racism, systemic plight, systemic plight by a particular party that they want to protect. This is a political movement more than anything else. So Black Lives Matter, what the athletes are saying, what the churches and these church pastors are not saying by standing up to true righteousness, justice and truth, justice and truth, is, well, we really want to protect this party. We don't want to out them this way. There's one party in particular. I'll just, I won't say the parties, but I'll say you it's can, a progressive party. You can say it. I can say it. So it's a progressive party. It's a progressive Democrat party. Here's what we have historically as a result of that party. We have slavery. We have progressive judges that upheld slavery, even though the Constitution and the, and the Declaration. So they were, they were progressive judges. They, those progressive judges upheld Jim Crow laws, black codes, Dred Scott decisions, those types of things. Well, also, they were the party that voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But even in the 1800s, then that party provides a militia force, the KKK, so to go after and keep try to keep blacks in line and, and whites that would try to help blacks. Then um, when we get to the 1960s, that party partnered with the eugenics movement. Then you have Margaret Sanger that came out of that eugenics movement. Founded Planned Parenthood. Founded Planned Parenthood. And then... So, so you have all of these. These are plights. These are these may not necessarily. So, in the 1800s, it was systemic racism. As we get into the 1900s, I saw that there was a sort of a a pivot to if we can just uh, sort of relegate this cast of people or these this particular race of people to to dependency state. Then we have power, and we can aggregate more and more and more power. So it's they would put in a nuanced plight, which would be no school choice, which would be complete support for Planned Parenthood, which would be um, you know even actually dismantling the family via LB, LBJ's programs, right? Uh, where the, the father you, you get more money from welfare if the father is not actually in the home, right? These types of policies, these actually create plight, black plight, that we're still seeing th- come out today. If we actually address these issues, we have to address, well, where does it stem from? Who's the culprit? Right, exactly. Then we have to, we have to say, look, the Democrats so you figure out where the problem They're the racists. From. They're the ones who went like, but, but you never hear that. Now, modern day, let's take a look at another situation. We have all of these instances where we have these altercations with modern day police forces. It used to be that when a person has an issue with police and the police were derelict in the way that they handled that person, that we'd go right to that chief of police, we'd go right to that mayor, we'd go right to that governor, and we say, look, the trickle down here didn't work. You're, you're really messing up our community. None of those people, those, you know, those NBA stars, NFL stars, none of them have castigated the mayor who actually hired the police chief, who actually hired the police officer, who actually conducted the dereliction in relation to dealing with, and the reason why, because they're all, they're all Democrat cities. They're all Democrat cities, and so nobody wants to expose 
the Democratic Party historically and modern day. So let's specifically, but that's where the buck stops. Let's specifically talk about what you're talking about yeah. so people know really. Minneapolis. Yeah. They've had racial police problems for a long time that they knew about, that they have they have discipline officers. Those officers they knew had racial problems, had violent and temper problems. They continue to let them out on the street. The governor forever has been well, not not. I guess they've had a couple of Republican governors, but it's been for de- a very Democrat. It's all Democrat. The the mayor of Minneapolis has been a Democrat for like a thousand years. Yes, forever. Right. The chief of police. The entire power structure was Democrat. LeBron James comes out and and goes ballistic on on Donald Trump for Tries saying to point at the White House federal. When this entire issue is a local issue, that people don't understand, I don't think that police departments are completely local. They were you don't transfer from the Minneapolis department to the Chicago department. They're 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 two completely different entities. The federal government has nothing to do nothing to do with anything. It's all local control. So NBA stars are screaming at Donald Trump because a Democrat everything caused this problem. That's what you're saying. A Democrat chief of police, a Democrat mayor, a Democrat governor, all the way up the line. And they're the ones who we should have been marching and protest on. And they knew this for at least 15 years. They knew it. And nobody's doing it. So we have the same thing with altercations in Chicago, altercations in New York, altercations in Baltimore. All Democrat, nobody's saying a thing. Instead, they're pointing to the White House. How does that happen? Donald, these, these things predate Donald Trump, first of all. Second of all, he's federal. It has nothing to do with happening. He doesn't hire the chief of police for a particular city. Are you kidding me? But yet... Nobody's calling them out. What well, you know, it used to be that if we're going to protest, we're going to take the protest right to the person who caused the harm. Well, what happened here? The same the same logic would 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 bear with reparations. Okay, let's have the conversation about reparations. I think it's worthy to have the conversation. Let's have it. Reparations are always paid to the person who caused the harm. So, for instance, if 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 you are a wealthy person. You accidentally ran over somebody's child. You went to court. You you get charged for something, but you would also have to pay the fa- repara- you'd have to repair that with to the, the punitive the damages. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So the same is in, in relation to this whole concept of reparations, but yet they want to overlay reparations on the entire United States. But here's the issue: there is a particular party that enslaved blacks. There is a particular party that passed these abusive laws that kept blacks enslaved for longer than they needed to be. There is a particular party that started the KKK. There is a particular party that causes the plight right now in our community. If we're going to have the conversation about reparations, let's have it. But let's lay it at the feet of the party who does, because they're still in existence today. It's the Democrat Party, right? And they have lots of money. Why don't we, in mass, blacks, go to the Democrats and say, look, historically you've done this stuff. We get it. You may not, it may not represent your current thought, but you're the ones who did this. So we want reparations for the harm caused to our community. This is not a, a United States issue. You know, you had a lot of northern abolitionists that fought hard. As a matter of fact, that lost their sons and daughters, well, mostly sons back then, in the Civil War in order to assure that blacks would have freedoms. It was the Northern abolitionists that that took up the Civil War on our behalf. And they lost their sons and daughters, husbands and uncles and all of that. 
700 and some odd thousand. So you're going to ask them who were actually on your side all this time to all who who sacrificed their their project their you know their their lineage and their family to also get, to to not overlay that on the generations past to to make up for reparations no we have one party that did it we have one part that same party still in existence they still have money and if we're sincere about it we need to go to them and if our nba nfl all of our players were sincere and if it were not political if they were sincere they would lay it squarely at the feet of the Democrats and say, look, you owe us reparations. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. So talking to Kevin McGarry here from every Black Lives Matters, not just some, and uh, womb to tomb, right? Womb to tomb. And the Frederick Douglass Society. And uh, if, if people don't know who Frederick Douglass is, I mean, there has been some pushdown in racial stuff that we, we really need to be honest about. It. And one of those things is one of the greatest Americans who has lived is Frederick Douglass, who I never, right. heard, I never heard about him when I was in school, right? And so we do, there are issues for us to solve. Now, having said that, you know, you're a clearly extremely conservative politically, and we're from our faith, you know, Christian basis. Yeah. We, you go to Rob McCoy's church. He's a good friend of mine. Rob McCoy, way to go, brother. I mean, standing up, opening up his church yeah. in the face of the oppressive California government and all this. So, you know, you go to a great church, very politically conservative. What's your stance on all this kneeling for the national anthem stuff? Well, what 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 escapes me is how the men that are kneeling for the national anthem, they completely dismiss the hundreds of thousands of lives that were lost of those who fought that battle in the Civil War to just provide them the opportunity. Now, they say it's not about that, that they get to choose its meaning and it's something different. No, it, it is about that. It's about anti-Americanism. It's about social justice, I guess, in, in some strange way. And, and they completely disregard the sacrifices of men and women who have gone before them that give them the opportunity to play and make tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So the biggest thing for me is that there's other ways that you can be effective as a as a you know sports person, a person who's playing football, basketball, or what would you suggest if you uh, were I would suggest, if I would you were su- stud running back? Yeah, you look like you could have been a stud so, running back. Yeah. What I would suggest is this is that you use your stature. Like if Colin Kaepernick would have said, you know what, we're going to have a, I'm here in Chicago, and we're going to have a peace march every weekend until we end this. I'm going to lead it. I'll be out in front. 
And if you want to come down on every Saturday until we start to see a, the, the stem and the tide of the amount of violence in our streets, because we all have family members and community that have to live here. If he were to lead a march, he could do that. He'd be safe and it would really make a difference in those communities. And there's other communities across the country, you know, New York and Detroit and Baltimore and Memphis. And so there's other communities where these uh, basketball stars and, and NFL players where they live, that they can make a big difference by um, saying that they would, they, they want to stand up for justice and for righteousness. And uh, the way that they're going to do that is they're going to, they're going to start having, encouraging community activists to walk along with them for peace in these streets. The reality, you know, just, I just read right before I came in here to talk to you today, that Chicago had 50 shootings this weekend, 11 murders. I don't know how many of those were stray bullets, but there's probably a few of them that were stray bullets. This is this is really, this is not like Kosovo. This is Chicago in the United States. So we really do have war zones on the weekends in particular in some of our larger major cities, urban cities. It would make a huge difference if our stars, you know, movie stars as well as athletes, would go to these cities and say, look, I'll be out here every weekend until we see a difference and start holding the community accountable for the, the amount of violence or lack therein in their communities. I think that if they wanted to make a statement, that's the way to do it. You don't disparage anybody in the, in the interim. You actually set a new standard for how we're going to see peace in our streets. And you'd gain a worldwide respect for that. You know, my son goes to college in Chicago and uh, he's telling me, how many times that they've been told, oh, they're because they're white, they're bad people, and you know have this this sort of racial justice and and liberal stuff shoved down their throat. And yet, he called my my uh, wife last year during the winter and said, "Hey, it's terribly cold here in Chicago. How do I get on Amazon? How do I do all this? Why? Well, I want to buy a bunch of gloves and hats, go down and feed the homeless, and make sure they're warm." So Hunter got the wrestling team. He's a wrestler, and the baseball team. Nice. And they were down there in Chicago nice. for several weekends, handing out gloves, handing out nice. food with their own money. And so here's the school and their self-righteousness pumping their chest and saying this and that. And the students they're beating up on are down there feeding the homeless. Yeah. School ain't feeding the homeless. Right. School ain't doing anything except for condemning people and pointing fingers. But these godly kids are down there really ministering to people. And that that's, that's kind of your point, right? That's, that's the point. That's the point. And in the same way with churches, you know, I... I you know, I, I see that a lot of churches really wanted to respond to George Floyd. So a lot of them jumped immediately on the Black Lives Matter ban, right? And, uh, a lot of them may not have known, uh, you know, what the organization stood for, but they agreed with the sentiment. But after it was clear that the organization is really antithetical, and I don't say that disparagingly. I say that matter-of-factly. I mean, this is what they say. You know, they uh, they just came out yesterday and said, F your Jesus. They just came out recently. Black Lives Matter did. Black Lives Matter. And and F your Jesus. And then, of course, they've been burning Bibles. They've been trying to burn up sanctuaries. Part of their platform is to promote homosexuality, to get rid of the patriarchy, and then and they also want to get rid of the nuclear family. That's right. So, uh, and so these are things that— The very really, things that have destroyed the black community, exactly. getting rid of the nuclear family. But in, 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 and also they are anti, you know, anti-religious faith. I mean, they are just, and then of course, you know, the, the, the founders practice witchcraft. They talk about how they do incantations over there when they, when they start to riot. So, wow. I yeah, yeah. It's uh, just, it's, so it's out there. But 
So here's the thing is that pastors had an awesome opportunity to say to their parishioners, look, we all know that the sentiment of Black Lives Matter, we get it, but we are going to renounce actually going out and supporting an organization that is really anti-Christ, that's anti what we stand for, antithetical to what our belief system. You know, you had you had you had great large pastors like Joel Seen and Hillsong and these other pastors who went out and marched with them. There was a great opportunity, especially in light of the the shootings even recently with the police officers who were just sitting in their car. It's a great opportunity for those pastors to come back to the table and say, you know what, we agree with the sentiment. We completely denounce the organization because we don't agree with the violence. We don't agree with the riots. We don't agree with chaos that's brought as a result of that. We certainly don't agree with Marxism. Uh, a lot of people, and I even had this conversation with one of my pastor buddies. He says, well, everybody talks about Marxism. Well, that's the deal. I said, do you know the history of it? He says, no. I said, let me just give you a, just a quick, quick cliff notes. I'll just say it here. Marxism was actually popularized by Marx and Engel, but it started with Plato, Thomas Hobbes, Thomas More. So these are iterations of that, the philosophy. Plato, Thomas Hobbes, Thomas More, and Hegel, ultimately Marx and Engels in the uh, late 1800s. There's one common denominator that every last one of them had completely in common. Guess what it was? They were all atheists. They hated the notion of God, all of them. They were demoniacs. They were satanic. Marxism is satanic. And, and I wish it were different. I wish I could say it different, but I'm just going off a fact. So you look at Plato, Thomas Hobbes, Thomas More, Hegel, and Marx and Engels, do your research, and you'll find out. Well, then you can find out the result when you look at oh, Stalin. Over 100 million deaths attributed to Marxism, communism, socialism. In just the 20th century. Yeah, 20th I mean, so it's clear to see that it's a demonic philosophy, you know, and so for churches to be aligned with any organizations like that. So let's talk about what churches should be saying, which is every black life matters. How do they get more information from on your organization? Then go to our website, everyblm.com or everyblacklifematters.info. I should get both of those. We, got, we have both of them. So there's two ways that they can contact us. Now, here's what we're doing. We know a lot of pastors don't want to alienate any parts of their congregation or their board of directors and, and you know their, their leaders. So what we're offering, uh, me and my co-founder, Neil Mauman, we're both authors, trainers, workshop leaders, ministry leaders, disciplers, and have been for decades. So what we what we would actually do is go in and have those conversations about, so we actually have trainings for, for churches, and we would actually have several, you know, t topics, and then at the end of the day, have a panel discussion that would include the pastor or, or senior leadership, or we can include everybody. But we would unify the church around the truth about these things. Speaking about not making people mad, not offending people, which is exactly what Jesus said, I think, right? Yeah, was, exactly. Make sure you don't offend anybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want them to be uncomfortable. Mm. Speaking of that, as I leave promise keepers, you know, we're putting out a statement this week that says churches need to open their doors. Yep. It doesn't matter what the government says. We don't get our permission from the government. Excellent. Being, being both friends with Pastor Rob McCoy, I had a feeling you'd agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's talk about your book. You talk about being an author. Where can they get a copy of this book? You can go to Amazon and get a copy of that book. And that, this, this book actually came out as a result of 
Rob was going overseas. You know, he goes overseas a lot. And he called me last year and he says, Kevin, I need you to take my, both of my Sunday services. And I says, uh, okay. So I was preparing for the Sunday services on a Saturday night. And I had uh, various verses and translations open. I had the message translation open to Genesis 3.15. And that translation says, and this is God speaking to the serpent and to Eve and giving them their consequences for their rebellion. And God said in Genesis 3.15, in the message, and I declare that there will be war, literally the term war, between you, the serpent, and the woman and her offspring. And I was astounded because all the other translations, of course, say enmity. You know, a lot of the other translations say enmity. The message is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Just make sure people understand. When you're reading the Bible, the message is not a Bible. It's something that's nice to sort of see how somebody put it into his own words. If you're reading the Bible, get yourself... A, yeah. a Bible translation, but yeah. So then I went to the Strong's to actually look at what enmity means, and I tried to. So it's hostility, hatred, you know, war, basically. And so I said, Lord, is there really a war in women? And I felt them, you know, sort of give me the unction to go forth, and and this book came out a few months later. I mean, it is absolutely incredible. I can only write. This is my fourth book, but I can only write. If Holy Spirit does the writing, I'm not a writer. I, people ask me all the time, "Well, when is your next book?" I said. I don't. I have no ambition, no ambition to to write. I don't. You know, that's not my thing. But if Holy Spirit gives me something, it just flows. And so this is this is that. I mean, it's footnoted throughout, but it talks about the war on women and how it's actually connected to Black Lives Matter, intersectionality, critical race theory, Black liberation theology, uh, James Cone. So all of this is actually connected to this war that started in the Garden of Eden. Unpacked it a little bit. We've got about 10 minutes left, but I want to, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this right now mm-hmm. who are going, I want to know how those are connected. I want to understand how this works, but I'm never going to read all those books. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So, and, and, and a lot of people are looking at that. And by the way, I can just tell you, this is a pretty short book. You couldn't tell maybe for me holding it up and it's got a lot of white space in it. So that means, you know, men can read it. Yeah. And uh, I don't see any pictures though. No pictures. Uh, you know, which is a disappointment, but Unpack that a little bit for guys who are listening. I want to understand what you mean by that. Okay. But I don't want to read all that so stuff. So the War on Women actually has a, a pre-existing nomenclature that goes along with that. And there's a – so the nomenclature with the War on Women is we're always immediately then looking at, you know, women who are, you know, having their marches with the, you know, costumes and the vagina stuff on and all this other kind of stuff. And them – you know, basically talking about how they don't make the same wages and they don't get treated and there's misogynists in the white, all this kind of stuff. So what this book is, is really breaking down is not that war, because that's actually not actually not the war at all. The war on women actually started in Garden of Eden. And basically it start it culminates with Satan targeting women in very specific ways. But he also very purposefully targets their offspring. And this is why we had, and I didn't know any of this until I really started to get into it. This is why we had Moloch and Baal and thousands of children being sacrificed. Now, these were not newborns. These were children being sacrificed, thrown into fires. The exact same mindset of your sort of elitist today. The women, the mothers of these children said, well, it's an enlightened thing. And it was sort of sort of this, you know, part of this sacrificial ritual that they would go through. And they felt that they were progressive and enlightened by sacrificing their children to these gods. 
So when you look at that and you look at all of the other sacrifices of children over time, but at least if you look at just the past 50 years worldwide, children have been murdered to the tune of two billion, with a B. That is not something that sort of society sort of evolve and evolve into at some point aborting children. No, this is strategic. It's purposeful. It correlates directly to what God told them in the garden, Genesis 3.15. So that actual is a direct assault on God's creation. So the reason why, long story short, the reason why he targets women and children. First of all, women are crowned with God, God's glory. Woman was actually the conduit bringing forth his own begotten son. So women are cherished, bringing forth all humanity through women. So they have a, they have a cherished position. And what Satan hates is anything that God especially loves. So he targets women because that's where humanity starts. And so he has all these myriad ways, including their own self-deception, of targeting women. So tie that to Black Lives Matter. So these racial movements and these sort of revolutionary movements, these Marxist movements, are all connected by way of they're all leading to revolution, even if they seem disconnected. You, you, you know, the transgender movement seems disconnected from the war on women's movement and, but, and, and Black Lives Matter and Black Liberation Theology. All of these seem disjointed, but they're all pointing towards the same thing. And what they're pointing towards is revolution and Marxism. Fundamentally, if we can bring all of these various factions together and unify them around revolution... Uh, then we can have a new world order consisting of the UN. We can have then Marxist, you know, sort of uh, enshrined throughout the world, which would then, of course, allow complete elimination of, you know, populations, because you could then say, look, you have a one child worldwide. So this would give Satan his ability then to start eliminating God's creation in numbers that we can't even imagine. So this is all connected to a war. It is a very spiritual war. So this book, although it starts, it nuances from this war on women and then it pivot, pivots very strongly into spiritual warfare, but not in a way that it spooks anybody out getting into it. If you, if you follow and connect the dots, you'll get into the spiritual warfare part and then realize, wow, so this is what spiritual warfare is all about. So this is what people really need to see. And, and we, I hear this all the time that Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. And right, politics is just leadership and it's the way we do it in America and we yeah. need Christians in leadership. But see, there is a, a war, we know this, a spiritual war between Satan and God's people. It's not between Satan and God because God is so much further above yeah, Satan. God empowered mankind to... Tap into his power to fight Satan, and, and, and this battle's going on. But Satan loves disunity. And so where you're driving at is Satan's driving at separating women from men, um, blacks from whites. Every different way you can, he's looking to disjoint things. And so that's why we see all of this looks unrelated, but it all comes – there is a commander of all this. Yeah, exactly. Sowing disjoint disjointedness and what the church needs to do right now while they're obeying their master of the government 
and not opening their doors yeah. while we're seeing domestic violence go up and suicide go up and drug use going yes. up. I was just talking to a doctor in the emergency room at, at the hospital in Denver. She was talking about the massive amount of alcohol poisoning she's getting because people are drinking themselves almost oh, to wow. death because of their loneliness. And the church is not rising up in our time because we're sitting here going, well, the government doesn't say I can open, which is not the history of the church and it ain't the history of America either. Yeah. And so that's where we're going with all this is that it's disunity everywhere you look. And so for those who are concerned about every black life mattering, women's issues, we all need to start saying, what does God's word say? What is that truth not running off into our little tribe? Meanwhile, all of our little church tribes are arguing with each other and not not getting along. Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. And Jesus would not have prayed that if it couldn't come true. It hasn't come true in 2,000 years, man. I'm praying that this is our time it does come true. Well, and especially now, we're completely disunited as churches, all right? So we have some churches that are not open at all and some churches that begrudge them and, and berate them for for not opening or opening, either way. And then we have this whole racial issue, right, dividing our churches. The reality is, is um, we need to find a better way to reconcile. You know, we've all been adopted into God's family and then given the uh, edict that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. So my question is, how are we doing that? How are we reconciling between our churches by going out and, and stomping for Black Lives Matter? I mean, I understand the sentiment, but the reality is, is what they stand for is completely antithetical. On the other side, you know, we have we have other pastors that say, uh, because you're out there, I have no sympathy for for what you're trying to say, and all lives matter. So you have you have this sort of diametric thing happening inside the body of Christ. Here's what I'd like to encourage us all to recognize: that if we are people of faith, if we have accepted Christ, if we have accepted the gospel as our gospel, the reality is is that the church has already been reconciled. We don't need racial reconciliation within the body of Christ. We need spiritual reconciliation. And what, the, what I mean by that is we all need to reflect on the gospel that we've all embraced as part of our, and committed to. The gospel says in Ephesians 2, 15 to 22, that Jesus reconciled the heavens, the earth, the the angels, everything in and unto himself. Now you're starting to preach, man. So so when are we gonna, you know, so all of this other stuff, we need to recognize that this is foolishness. And and we're allowing, you know, white privilege and all of this other foolishness to separate us. You know, when when you have black churches that say, you know, they need to feel our pain, they, they should be kissing our feet, they should be bowing to us, they should be doing this. What I have to say to those churches is, well, wait a minute, how do you how do you reconcile that with the fact that God says, vengeance is mine alone, vengeance is God, and then He also has several verses that talk about He recompenses the righteous and the unrighteous. God does that. So why would we try to step into God's role unless in our hearts of hearts we're actually saying, I get all that, but um, you know what? Becoming like Jesus is 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 too much. I don't see justice being meted out properly. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go and stand and march and and if I need to, I'll riot because God is not enough. That's essentially what we're saying. 
if it's we essentially like a belief. Yeah, it, it is. It's a lack of belief that God will recompense and demonstrate vengeance. Now we should stand for righteousness and justice, but there's ways to do that without going and actually rampaging with demons to 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 exert it. So as we as we wrap up, there's young kids listening to this that have had their minds filled with crap from college. Yeah. There's probably a lot more parents who are listening to this who have kids whose minds have been filled with crap. How do they tell their kids to respond? So daughter or son came back from school and lectured mom and dad on how racist they are. And, and mom and dad don't know how to respond. There's this swirl. All this is so new. People haven't had a chance to process. What do you say to the middle class suburban mom or dad who are trying to talk to their child who who has been got, given a lot of this and who that child is out there marching with Black Lives Matter and saying they're making a difference? What do they What do they say to that child? So one of the things that I would encourage all parents to sort of wrap their minds around this whole white fragility, white supremacy, white privilege argument are coming from college professors, Marxist professors. And they're avowed Marxists in most cases, and they're putting this poison in your children's minds. One of the things I would ask parents to do very compassionately and matter-of-factly is to ask those children, say, okay, so your professor told you this stuff, or your professors. So how many of them, again, have stepped away from their retirement and put black people in their positions? Because Marxism, basically, and, and, and this whole social justice argument means that Basically, you'll step down, you'll give up all your riches, right? So if you give up your tenure as a, as a Marxist professor, as a good Marxist would, if you give up your tenure, give up your riches, give it to a black organization, and make sure that a black then professor gets your position, then we may listen. I can guarantee you none of them, zero of them have done it. So the argument really needs to be sort of reframed we need to be more masterful about looking at what people are saying when they say they embrace these things. Now, if if Black Lives Matter, if, if, if that's really squarely it, they're not talking about Marxism, but they're talking about Black Lives Matter. One of the things you could say is, okay, I get you son or daughter. If Black Lives really matter, then every single Black life matters then, right? Get them to say that. And actually, I've done this with Black Lives Matter writers and they actually agree. They say, well, yeah, every single black life does matter. I say, good. Then you march with me. You stand up for life beginning at conception to natural death. Because if, if, black, if every single black life matters, then that's what you're saying. From conception, that life needs to be protected. That life needs to experience justice in the womb. So that means that as Planned Parenthood came out as a systemically racist organization, their words. So I don't know if you know this, but Planned Parenthood of New York actually came out, disavowed Margaret Sanger, said, yes, she was a eugenicist. Yes, we're a racist organization. Well, if they, if they did that, then your son or daughter should know that, number one. And number two, they should be ready to stand up with you against systemic racism that Planned Parenthood has admitted that they, that they do. And if they won't do that, if they don't, if they won't say black lives really matter from womb to natural death, then what they, they're really doing, this is a political activist movement. It is not a principled justice movement. We need to start opening people's eyes and say, either you're for justice and righteousness, or you're a political activist. And just own it. It's fine. You could be either one, but you can't be both. <laughs> you know, justice and righteousness is... is 
It stands on itself. What does that mean to you? Well, justice and righteousness doesn't seek money and power. Right, exactly. Political activism does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, my Great brother. Distinction. Thank you for that. Thank you for coming out here from the state of Northern California, yes, not sir. from LA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Kevin, website one more time. Website is everyblm.com or .org or everyblacklifematters.info. And you have really cool t-shirts and masks. They have your emblem as little baby feet. Can they get those on your website? Absolutely. We have an incredible store with all kinds of great apparel, mugs, all kinds of stuff. I love to wear your t-shirt. I wear it on the airplane. People look at me weird. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's because of your t-shirt or for some other reason. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, it should be. It's a, <laughs> and either way, we appreciate your uh, support. Well, I so much. I, I'm grateful to have you here, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. Ken Harrison.